Hello and welcome to the Oculus Podcast on March 22nd, 2017, which happens to be World Water Day. We have the perfect guest to celebrate this day. Innovative real estate developer and author Jonathan F.P. Rose joins me today to discuss his new and first book, The Well-Tempered City, What Modern Science, Ancient Civilizations, and Human Nature Teach Us About the Future of Urban Life, recently published on September 13th, 2016 by Harper Wave. Rose offers insights into his research, his innovative ideals, and lessons he has learned over his career helping to redevelop neighborhoods and cities around the country. In the well-tempered city, Rose, the co-developer of Via Verde, the East Harlem Center for Living and Learning, and other projects distills a lifetime of interdisciplinary research and first-hand experience into the five-pronged model for designing and reshaping cities with the goal of equalizing their landscape of opportunity. Drawing from the musical concept of temperament, Rose argues that well-tempered cities can be infused with systems that bend the arc of their development towards equality, resilience, adaptability, and well-being to achieve an ever-unfolding harmony between civilization and nature. Welcome to the Oculus Podcast, Jonathan. Thank you so much for having me, Miguel. Our pleasure. With 80% of the world's population anticipated to live in cities by 2050, what are the immediate and long-term challenges to the world? The interesting thing about this um, rapid urbanization that's going on is that there are positives and negatives. So first, let me talk about the one of the positives. Um, E.O. Wilson recently published a book called Half Earth, in which he says the only way we can save nature and save uh, biodiversity is if we literally dedicate half the earth to natural preserves. One of the things that is driving urbanization is um, the industrialization of agriculture and the fact that the way the world economy is structured, that small farming and rural living is less and less effective for many, many families around the world. So there is this rural shift that's happening that actually allows us to begin to um, think about how we could realize Wilson's dream of preserving half the world for nature. So that's a very good side of urbanization. The On the other hand, and then if we could really figure out how to make great cities on the other side, you could have two halves, the, the natural half, the, the human urbanized half, and if we get them all in balance, we could solve our problems. The problem is that the urbanization is happening at such a high speed that we do not have the investment, the infrastructure, the civic governance systems to catch up with it. And so we're in some ways seeing future shock happening to cities. In much of the developing world, for example, we're seeing vast slums that are being built. The urbanization means there's vast slums without proper infrastructure. So there's huge traffic jams that are related to it and a lot of pollution. And and, uh, these are not poor schools and poor health within these communities. So I think the challenge really is we have to Uh, recognize that urbanization is coming much, much quicker. We have to figure out how to plan, invest, and organize for it so that it's positive urbanization rather than negative urbanization. How does the vision of the well-tempered city leave adaptability in Vilca times? So first of all, let's talk about VUCA. So VUCA uh, stands for Volatility, Uncertainty, Complexity, and Ambiguity. It's a phrase the military came up with in the 1990s to describe our current condition. So with this rapid urbanization I described and and many other things, we know the, the volatility of the financial markets, for example. We're living in a much more complicated time and um, a much more complex time and therefore there's much more uncertainty. So these rapidly urbanizing cities are going, they're living in much less predictability and so they have to develop many more adaptive systems. We have to think about not answering problems, but actually 
increasing the capacity of cities to be able to answer problems. I call this adaptive capacity. Um, when you're in a volatile uh, environment, things are changing so much, your ability to adapt to change is more important than any one particular solution you come up with. So the vision of a well-tempered city is one that is in balance with humans and nature, that increases uh, opportunity for individuals, but does in a very dynamic, adaptive, co-evolving, uh, pro-evolutionary way. I really enjoyed how you're able to take inspiration from Box the Well-Tempered Clavier, book one and book two, and establish the five characteristics of the well-tempered city. Please share your journey through many years to arrive at the vision for our urbanized future and introduce each characteristic. I've been working on these ideas since I was a teenager. I've been always really interested in cities, interested in sociology and psychology and the many, and anthropology and history and the many, and urban planning, all those uh, factors that weave through the book. And one of the great things about writing a book is it gives you the opportunity to think. It forces you to have the opportunity to think and to wrestle with ideas. So I have had 10 principles. I've had all kinds of ideas for many, many years, but the book forced me to have a framework. And it has to be, the interesting thing is a framework for how to express these ideas. But the interesting thing also about a book is that most books are read from beginning to end, and therefore, the, which is linear, you're trying to describe a non-linear subject in a linear way. So you also had to think about the order of them. So the first section is really about, is called coherence, and it's really about how we plan and how we plan in an integrated and coherent way. The second section is about circularity, and that's really about infrastructure and how do we create infrastructure systems that instead of being linear where we have a bunch of inputs, cities consume uh, many, many water and energy and construction materials, all kinds of stuff. 98% of what's consumed in a city today with at least six months later is waste. And that's unsustainable. So the coherent section, I'm sorry, the circularity section is then how do we create circular systems that uh, eliminate waste. The next one is resilience. We've been thinking a lot more about the resilience of cities. And that's really this issue of adaptability. Part of it has to do with green buildings. The book writes a lot about green buildings and bringing nature back into cities and parks. Those are parts of making cities more resilient. Uh, but this adaptive capacity part returns. And what we learn is the adaptive capacity is not an issue, only an issue of physical systems. It's an issue of social systems. So that brings us to the fourth section, which is community and how do we describe uh, and create social systems. What does social network theory tell us? What is, you know, What can we learn that tells us how to make social systems that are much more resilient, adaptive, and supportive of people? And the last section is called compassion because what's really clear to me is that we can take the best of every city in the world and from those we know a lot about how to do great transportation systems, how to do great parks and open space, how to build affordable housing, how to build great school. You know, so if you had, I have a section of the book that says if you had the school system of Finland, which is the best in the world, and the, uh, you know, the recycling of San Francisco, which is the best in the world, and the mass transit system of Hong Kong, which is the best in the world, and you could go on and on and on, and you'd make a pretty great city. But how do we actually get there? And what's missing is not only the political will, but the cultural the civic commitment to that. And that requires a major shift from self-maximization, me doing the best I can, to systems optimization. A shifting from focusing on the me to focusing on the we. And that requires altruism. 
So the last section is how do we actually generate the kind of altruism that creates the, with consensus that allows us to actually build a better city. In part one, coherence, readers get treated to an intense brief history about why cities began their growth and in some cases descent into crisis. How does the well-tempered city generate stability and well-being for the 21st century city? So first of all, one of the interesting things about the history is, the, I go back to the very first building that we know, there may have been others, but and it was a temple. It was an amazing temple. And all ancient cities have, if you could dig down to their deepest level, to their core, there is a, a temple. The archaeologist Klaus Schultz said, first came the temple, then came the city. And in that, the temple had two functions. One function was really to balance humans and nature, and the other function was assure the, was the arbiter of fairness and justice. And not only did temple, not only the religions kind of were the purveyors of the moral codes, but they often were also the storehouses, they're the most trusted places to collect the grains and things and then redistribute them in a fair way. So these, um, these principles of balancing humans and nature and justice and fairness, I think um, that we're in the very foundation of our cities. Uh, are essential today. But there were other foundations in the cities too, which were density and diversity and, and that they're part of vast trade networks. Cities emerged, no city emerged individually as a great city. They emerged as a network of cities, what actually archaeologists call an interaction zone. So the lessons for today are, first of all, cities do much, much better when they are networked, when they're part of trade networks and intellectual capital networks and human networks. And when we get into what we're seeing both in America and around the world, a protectionist sense of we, should be, we shouldn't be trading as much with others, we should have more trade barriers, we shouldn't be having as much immigration, we shouldn't be, which by the way leads to its very nature of uh, lack of intellectual exchange. We've seen that those usually are the beginnings of the declines of cities. Um, and so those are, I believe, actually dangerous thoughts. So to answer your question about creating gen, uh, stability and, and well-being in the 21st century, number one, we need to be connected, and particularly in a global economy. Number two, we need to uh, understand how to balance humans and nature and how to, be, how to really permeate fairness. And in a time of increased income inequality, there is a risk when more and more People in the population do not feel the system works for them and do not fear there's feel that there's pervading fairness. The city is more is less likely to have stability and well-being. In planning for growth, what is the ideal range of community size that can successfully adopt the nine Cs? So I don't know. But what it does seem is that if you look at, in general at happiness and well-being in American cities, the happiest are mid-sized. They're kind of they're college towns. They may be between eighty and five hundred thousand people. We see as cities get bigger, they get more efficient, they get more prosperous, but not necessarily happier. The other interesting thing is as cities get larger, one of the ways they deal with their size is they become multi-centric. So they not only have a down. So think of Atlanta. Atlanta now has a downtown, a midtown, an uptown, and a buckhead. So it has these, and it probably has more that I don't know about. But it has these four clear kind of concentrated zones, and so uh, that is one part of the solution of a city to become larger is to become is to have these diversified nodes. Although sustainable consciousness is growing, 
Is there enough momentum to change planning practice into a dynamic approach and still reach an environmental balance by 2030, followed by the well-tempered city of 2050? I'm going to take these into a couple pieces. So one of the things that I have suggested as a planning paradigm is that we need to move from static planning systems to dynamic planning systems. That instead of doing a master plan and hoping it'll last 20 years in such a rapidly changing time, we know it won't. And that what we really need to do is establish a very big vision of where we want to go to identify what are called community health indicators. These are measures of all the health and education and all factors of well-being, affordable housing and transportation and congestion and air pollution. And you can measure hundreds of those things as ways to measure how well you're doing on your vision. And then cities can adjust the tools of governance they had, the zoning codes and planning codes, regulations, investments, incentives, tax breaks and stuff they give to ever be trying to get towards the vision. And you can measure with all those um, health community health indicators to see how well you're going. So I call that a dynamic planning process. By the way, what's interesting about that process is it takes some of the power out of the hands of the politicians because it says once we've set this vision, that's where we're going. We're not going to make, we're only going to make deals. We're going to make deals that further us in getting towards that vision. Technology is emerging that allows us to be much more dynamic in the planning. The question is, will city planning departments and the politicians who lead cities be willing to move to a more dynamic, measured, outcome-based, focused um, planning system. So I, ra- I definitely see, so that's the dynamic planning process. And your question was, will sustainable consciousness grow? And I absolutely see that growing in cities. And it's even more important now that we have a federal administration that is not going to take action on climate change is going to and and is so aggressively looking to undermine environmental regulation we're seeing cities more and more say we don't want to be polluted terrible places with you know bad sewer systems etc so cities are responding by saying we're going to we'll just take more responsibility for a better environment for our residents ourselves. And I see that globally. And I see cities, organizations like C40, where cities are sharing best practices and sharing their lessons in sustainability. So I I don't know if we're going to get great cities living in environmental balance by 2030, but I think our cities are ever progressing towards being better and better as environmental stewards. Where is there the greatest demand for affordable housing in the United States of America? How did the development of Via Verde, or the East Harlem Center for Living and Learning, address this need? So, the United States currently has 20 million American families who spend more than 50% of their income on housing, which is personally unsustainable for them. And there is more affordable, more need for affordable housing. There's more poverty in the suburbs than in the, than in the cities. People have a misunderstanding. They think that the cities are where all the poverty is, but it's actually not. And people who live in the suburbs are spending lower income people at 20, 30, or maybe even more percentage of their income on transportation getting to and from jobs. And so the the system is unsustainable for them. And so interestingly, um, as much as there's an enormous demand for affordable housing in cities, there's also a different demand in suburbs. The city demand is driven by uh, rapid growth. 
And what we're seeing in cities like Boston, Washington, New York, San Francisco, Seattle, Los Angeles, Portland, is as the economies of these cities are doing so well, their housing prices are rising, there's not enough development to meet demand, um, and we're creating affordable housing uh, huge gaps. We're also seeing this, though, in the suburbs, where, as I mentioned, there's in, in increasing poverty. And the, I'll, I'll rephrase this, we're seeing it in the well-connected, transit-accessible suburbs where the market really wants to be. So poor people are being increasingly pushed to the outskirts in places with huge driving costs and neighborhoods that are not walkable, where the consumer, the market rate consumer, less and less wants to be. So that's the general overall demand issue. The affordable, nationally we build about 65,000 new affordable housing units a year, funded by the low-income housing tax credit, a federal program, and then supplemented by state and local funds. And we lose over 120,000 units a year to either abandonment on the low side or gentrification on the side. We're probably losing much more on the high side of gentrification. So the problem is we're, we are building new affordable housing at half the rate that, we're, that it, the stock is disappearing. So the United States has a huge deficit. We're only getting way behind. So the development of Via Verde and East Harlem Center for Living and Learning, which are two fantastic projects that our company developed, which I can describe later, but they're not sufficient to meet the demand. They're great projects, but they're not sufficient to meet the need of affordable housing throughout the nation. To build the affordable housing that is needed in the high-cost cities that I mentioned earlier, we need two things that are on a, there's a shortage of. We need land. We need really free land. If you think about affordable housing, it's totally subsidized. So every time, if you add a hundred dollars to the cost of the land, you have to add a hundred dollars to the cost of the subsidy, and that just means there's less subsidy, so there's less affordable housing built. So affordable housing really should be built on free or very cheap land. We don't have much of that in New York City now, very little. Um, and it needs subsidy because the cost of building and operating the housing is greater than the, than lower income people can pay. So that subsidy can come from essentially uh, two areas. It can be actually outright governmental subsidies. And again, with proposed federal cutbacks, we don't know to what extent they'll happen. That's only going to get harder, although the city wisely does have some of its own internal funds to subsidize affordable housing. Um, or we can use market rate development to subsidize affordable housing development. So, um, and the mayor and city council have put forth plans to essentially try and move us to a 70-30 environment for new construction where 70% is market rate and 30% is affordable. The 421A tax uh, credit program was, uh, tax abatement program was based on that premise. The numbers actually worked. It was proposed about two years ago and uh, all ready to pass the state legislature, which needs to approve it, and the governor uh, derailed it, and uh, it remains derailed. It'd be really, really helpful to get that program back on track because uh, you can see for every 100,000 of new units of new development under it, 30,000 would be affordable. The, le the city council, the, leg the legis state legislature, which has to prove it, and the, and the mayor are all in alignment. It was all ready to get passed, and then the governor derailed it. There is also concern expressed in the well-tempered city about the decline of suburbs as they've become places of poverty and drug epidemics. How do they become part of the well-tempered regions considering the lack of a density and economic vitality? 
It is harder to turn around disconnected suburbs because connectivity is so important. What we're seeing is the growth of connected suburbs. It's very easy to see in the New York metropolitan region. Think of all the Hudson River towns and towns that are connected by the Metro North train system to New York City, how they are thriving. They're providing people with both a suburban environment, which some people want, and suburban schools, which some people want, but also tremendous walkability in great town centers. We're seeing in the Washington, D.C. area the insertion of town centers into places that may not have had them, the decrease in auto dependence and the increase of walkability. What's interesting is from an urban design point of view, some towns are designed to be much more retrofittable than others. And so we're seeing both a value gap and a quality of life gap between those that are transformable and those that are not. And then those are, there are parts of the country where the cities and suburbs, you know, in the Midwest particularly, lack and South lack sufficient economic opportunity to be actually able to pay for such a retrofit. And in those places, they're pretty much in decline unless they have some driver of significant job growth. Can the loss of farmland and habitat be mitigated by farmlets, community gardens, roof gardens, or vertical farms? So first of all, I'm not willing to concede a loss of farmland and habitat. We actually have to use our farmland better. We uh, There's another book called The Third Plate by Dan Barber, which is a really interesting, who's the chef at the Stone Barns, which is a really interesting book about how we generate soil and we regenerate soil and how you really create amazing farms. Um, and I deeply believe we have to recreate, restore natural habitat outside of cities and restore more natural habitat in cities. We actually have to bring parks and open space to cities. And then also I believe that uh, roof gardens and community gardens, all that can be very, very effective. I'm concerned about vertical farms where Uh, We haven't really seen many economic models that work. It may work more in the future. My concern, interestingly, is not about the verticalness. It's a quality of the verticalness, which is that if you go back to this book, The Third Plate, what you see is the extraordinary healthy capacity of food when it's really naturally grown. And a lot of the vertical farms are grown on hydroponics, and so they have specific nutrients, but not all the thousands and thousands of micronutrients that you get in really great soil. And also, we know that plants are affected by the wavelengths of light that they receive. And, um, you know, grow lights are not the same as sunlight. And so... um, I'm concerned as to whether the food that grows in uh, vertical farms, and by the way, this is not saying it is not healthy. I'm saying I don't know. And I think we really have to attend to nutritional equivalency. I find it fascinating that capturing wastewater and pumping it back into the ground cannot alleviate the anticipated freshwater shortage. However, with 3 billion more people in 2050, that will put significant stress on the Earth's ecosystems. How will we ever catch up to serve 10 billion people? That is going to be hard. We do need to move to circular systems. So, uh, I gave an example in the book of the city of Windhoek, which is the capital city of Namibia, which was running out of water. And it's also the area is rapidly turning into desert, which is happening in many parts of the world. And what we said, they created a system that purified all of its wastewater, sewer water, and turned it back into drinking water and cycled that. 
It seems, by the way, in the water areas, one area between that and desalinization and conservation, that we at least have the technologies, we have the tools for how to help our way through it, but we don't have always the will or made the investments in that. A population of 10 billion is a really hard population to sustain. Uh, interestingly, it just seems the demographic forces are going to get us there. And then we're finding many mature countries actually have negative population growth rates. So most of Europe is negative. Um, so it'd be good if the whole world got that way. And after 2050, we started getting our population down. But recycling is just absolutely essential. The earth just doesn't have enough resources to keep for us to keep consuming. And we're not only consuming things like we mine materials or we burn fossil fuels and they come in one way and they, we destroy them in essence or burn them up. But we also are depleting our soils, both through runoff and through poor agricultural practices. And that also is something that is unsustainable. So the question about how we ever ha catch up, I don't think we have a global plan for how to catch up. I'm a big believer in planning. So I think first you have to plan, what does it take to be sustainable with 10 billion people in 2050? What are all the things we have to do? What are the steps we have to get there? And then at least we'll know whether we can get there or not. Right now we're running blind and we seem to be have this bizarre willingness to run into the future where we can see the problems and be blind to not even sufficiently try to hand to measure or frame out the solutions. The fourth characteristic community is, is it something as simple as building a strong social network to establish communities of opportunity? First of all, let's talk about what is a community of opportunity. We now know that for the last 70 years, that, that children who grow up in the bottom quartile of American population, of American income, have much lower chance of moving out of poverty than uh, children in any time in the last 70 years, since the um, World War II, essentially. So the question is, how do we create opportunity? I really believe that America was conceived of as a land of opportunity and that our moral responsibility is to make sure that that landscape of opportunity is as equally distributed as can be. The constituents of opportunity are that people need to live in a base of affordable, safe, green, affordable housing. They need access to great schools, great health care, you know, um, not only sc uh, schools for kids, but lifelong education. We've already talked about the need for healthy food, parks and open space, arts and culture, a whole series of, I don't care if I said mass transit. All of these things are factors that um, lead to opportunity. They're complicated. And not only that, we need to think of them not as individual things, but to see how they tie together. For example, 20% of the kids who enter into New York City's school system who are poor suffer from some health issue, which makes them poor learners. Like, they can't see. All they have to be done is tested for glasses and be given a $10 pair of glasses. They'll do better in school. Or they have hearing issues that came from an early childhood infection that was never treated. And that can be treated with you know, three weeks of antibiotics and they'll hear better and do better in school. That's just one example of how health and education, all these factors of opportunity are tied together. And so it is not simple. We need to not only work on improving every one of them, but improving the way they are all interconnected to create real communities of opportunity. An important part of communities of opportunity are social networks. We do find that communities that have what's called collective efficacy, where people feel that working together, they can have more impact than working alone, is another key element to measure of uh, the effectiveness and therefore the opportunity quotient in a community.
In most of your presentations, you barely had enough time to really express the fifth characteristic, compassion. I invite you to expand this characteristic in response to your premise. The purpose of our cities must be to integrate the science sought by the Enlightenment and the harmony of Bach to compose the conditions of fitness of its people, its neighborhoods, and nature. Now, I'm going to start with this idea of fitness. We often think of evolutionary fitness, Darwin's fitness, as the survival of the fittest, that which is like, you know, the strongest can beat the other guy up. But it actually, to me, means the most fit together. How do the pieces all integrate? I mentioned just earlier how housing and, and education and health are, are tied together. And just one small example. There's two parts to this, which I call entwinement. The first part is recognizing this fitness, this interdependence, this sense that every part of a city is all interconnected. And you can't just solve one problem. The, the, the problems are all codependent. You know, what's interesting is, for example, Singapore wants to solve its water problem by increasing reservoirs. To do that, they need to occupy less land, so they need more dense buildings that are taller, that allow them to have more mass transit. When you create more walkable mass transit, they can get rid of roads and turn it back to nature. You can begin to see how all the pieces are tied together. So number one, we need to see that everything is tied together. And number two, we have to develop a deep sense of altruism for the whole. Instead of saying that I am here to serve myself and my family, we have to, every component of this magnificently integrated, holistically tied together system that is a city has to not only view that they're out to improve themselves, they have to view the wholeness of the system. There's a psychologist named Dan Siegel invented the phrase MWE, M-W-E, which is kind of the mushing together of me and we. We have to grow MWE-ness. Now what's interesting is that evolutionary biologists have observed that humanity's great strength, and the reason why we are what E.O. Wilson calls the, the, one, the social conquerors of the earth, is because of altruism. It is when we collectively act. So the strongest evolutionary competitor is not the individual who's really strong. It's the group that is really altruistic, the group that takes care of its weak, that takes care of the elderly, that raises the children together. That compassion for all is, uh, it turns out, is our best evolutionary competitive advantage. So, to me, what we need to do is take this understanding that we are all interwoven, we're part of a magnificent interdependent system, and infuse that understanding. Think of it as almost as a network that you then soak the network in the power of compassion, in deep altruism for all of its components. So, in effect, it's saying, I don't only want my own school children's school to be good. I want every child's school to be good. And it's even to recognize it's not only for compassionate reasons, but when every child is able to become the best they can be, our city will be better for it. We will be more competitive. We will have more wisdom. We'll have more knowledge. We'll have better citizens. So there's a bit of selfish outcome in it, but there's it, it, it comes. You'll never get there from selfishness. You'll only get there from compassion. So entwinement is this idea of weaving this sense that we're all connected and compassion for all together. And I believe that that is the soil from which the evolutionary fitness, remember earlier I mentioned adaptive capacity. I believe that entwinement is the basis of the adaptive capacity from which, and it's the only way that cities can thrive. The architect Christopher Alexander in his book, The Timeless Way of Being, said, 
Making wholeness heals the maker. And I believe that as we strive to make a greater and whole system for others, it heals ourselves. What will follow the well-tempered city? So, um, first of all, we're trying to put these actions, these uh, ideas into action. I've been trying to do that all my life, but our firm, along with L&M, recently won an RFP to create a place called Sendero Verde in, in East Harlem. It's between 111th and 12th Park and Madison, and we have a vision of building mixed income housing. It'll be passive house. So it'll be the largest really green building in New York City and I believe in the country. We've brought in partners such as Mount Sinai Hospital to bring in a healthcare center, uh, Harlem RBI, who we've worked with previously to bring in an amazing charter high school, the YMCA to bring in uh, swimming pools and exercise places and after school classes and union settlement house to bring in senior services and teen services and many, many other partners for community gardens. We have beautiful open space. We're trying to, so we're trying to actually model what a community of opportunity could be in one fantastic block that both serves the residents of the block and also every one of those things I described is neighborhood serving. So it's also radiating out um, to the community. So that's some of the work we're trying to do within our company. I've been increasingly thinking about poverty and income inequality and what are the pathways out for that. I deeply believe it's tied to this issue of opportunity. And um, if there's another book, that's what the next book will be about. We look forward to it. I want to thank you for this magnificent book. This is essential reading for our design professions. As the urban world faces a probable future out of balance, the Well-Tempered City provides a lucid vision towards equilibrium and harmony qualified by clearly demonstrated premises and easily adoptable innovations. I've shared this timely book of knowledge with developers and design professionals who are excited about realizing the strategies you presented and are now adopting them. Thank you for opening up the path for our listeners. I'm certain they will enjoy reading and implementing the Well-Tempered City. And thank you so much for these fantastic, thought-provoking questions. You're welcome. As always, I'm deeply grateful to the Oculus Board, Advisory Committee, Executive Director Ben Prosky, Editor Alan Brake, Camilla Schausen, Bert Hoff, Jacob Friedy, James Fellerino, Philip Stevens, who is our audio technician today, and the audiovisual crew for their dedicated efforts to make this all possible. Please read the review of The Well-Tempered City on the eOculus website at www.aiany.org. The Oculus Podcast Series is brought to you by the Oculus Board Advisory Committee of the American Institute of Architecture's New York City chapter. Take good care, Jonathan. And thank you, Miguel.